Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Mary Doria Russell, winner of the James Tiptree Award, the British Science Fiction Association's Best Novel Award, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and multiple awards from the American Library Association. Her newest novel is The Women of Copper Country, published by our friends at Atria Books. Mary, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And I have a couple questions about you, Mary, before we talk about your book. And the first is about your academic career. <laughs> <laughs> How does someone with a Ph.D. in biological anthropology end up with a career as a successful novelist? Unemployment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, my my uh, department at Case, West, Case Western Reserve University School of Dentistry was pretty much shut down. I taught gross anatomy, mm -hmm. and they decided that they could uh, save money by having all of the dental students take basic sciences in the med school. Mm -hmm. So I didn't actually lose my job. I know right where it is. Mm -hmm. It's in the medical school, and somebody else is doing it now. Oh, <laughs> I see. Thank you very much for that information. Um, my next question for you is about genre. As I mentioned in your introduction, you have won the British Science Fiction Association's Best Novel Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. You've been nominated for a Hugo. These awards were for your Sparrow novels, which are firmly rooted in the world of science fiction. And your new novel, The Women of Copper Country, and a few of your other novels are... Actually, all of them. Yeah, all yeah. of the other novels are, are historical fiction. Yeah, are historical yeah. novels. Um, you've written a murder mystery. What has inspired you to jump around from genre to genre and from story to story instead of staying in one corner of the I, bookstore? You know, I'm easily bored, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, the, the genre kind of chooses the story. Um, or I, I get interested in something, and it's more telling the story than saying, now, what, what genre can I do next? Um, I'm pretty much a genre slut. I will, I will stand on the literary corner, and I will get into any genre that will take me to a good party. That's mm -hmm. my attitude. Mm -hmm. um, but I, do, uh, I did think of uh, The Sparrow and Children of God as historical novels that took place in the future. Mm -hmm. um, the narrator was looking back at them mm -hmm. uh, from a distance. Um, and uh, uh, seeing the story unfold with some compassion because the narrator realizes that there was no way for this not to be a tragedy. Um, so I always thought of you know looking backward at something, even if it t if the, the story itself takes place in the future. We've caught up with that future. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're now into what I thought was the far future in mm -hmm. 1996. We're starting to catch up to the dates in The Sparrow. But yeah, um, so I'm, ha I'm comfortable with, um, with the past. Uh, and I like to understand things that I got a kind of a cursory knowledge of in fourth grade. You know, I'll, I'll, when you study history, mm -hmm. all right, you just kind of accept whatever is in the book. The book is, that's like the oracle. And then, you know, 30 or 40 years later, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does that work? How, what? How <laughs> so I, I find myself getting interested in things that I just accepted or didn't know about. I, I like going off into little corners of history and finding something that explains what's going on around me today. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, 
now I would like to talk about your wonderful new book, The Women of Copper Country. Um, would you mind setting this book up for our listeners? It's it's um, it's a Romeo and Juliet story that takes place against the background of the 1913 copper strike in uh, Calumet, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you know, the north end of nowhere. It is a long way from anything. Um, and what I found really interesting about framing it with Romeo and Juliet is not just that there is a doomed love affair, because there is, but when you think about Romeo and Juliet, it's really a story about wealth and about who creates it and who keeps it, about how wealth is made. Um, Romeo and Juliet begins with a, with a sort of coming out party, a debutante party, and um, Juliet's father is introducing her to the local gentry, to the aristocrats. She is now all of 13 years old, and he's looking to auction her off, basically. She is a wholly owned asset of his family, and he is going to capitalize on her. And when she says that she does not want to be married to the person that he has picked out for her, he says, you have three choices. Beg, starve, die in the street. I'll ne'er acknowledge you. And that right there is exactly the um, uh, the attitude of the chief executive officer of the Calumet and Hecla Mining Corporation. Beg, starve, die in the streets. I own this city. I own your labor. If you don't like it, you can leave. And so I found for every single chapter of this book a quote from Romeo and Juliet that was astonishingly apt for what happens next in the historical uh, part of the uh, of the novel. Yeah, and what came first, uh, the story or the frame of Romeo and Juliet? The story came first. I had just finished writing Epitaph, and uh, I didn't have anything picked out. For Sometimes I, I know what I'm going to do next. Sometimes I don't know what I'm going to do next. This one was, uh, I, I had finished the Doc Holliday and the Wyatt Earp stories, and I had, you know, I was done with that, and I had the antenna uh, were out, you know, mm -hmm. looking for the next story. Happened to see a um, documentary called Red Metal on PBS. It was the 100th anniversary of the strike in Calumet against this copper country. And I came across the story of um, Annie Klobuchar Clements, um, who turns out is not related to Amy Klobuchar, the, the governor. Um, this is a 25-year-old woman who organizes a strike against the most powerful copper country company in the world. She gets, she gets 15,000 miners to lay down their tools and walk out. I went, whoa, that's interesting. I, happened to, I, I just put that out on, on Facebook, and a friend of mine, Rivka Tobin, gets in touch and says, my great-grandfather was the last man to die before the strike started. Her great-grandfather was Solomon Cavisto, and he her family and the situation that her family found itself in was central to the book. That's how I, well, I got to write this. I got to do something with this. She also told me that um, when, her, when Solomon Cavisto, her great-grandfather, died, James McNaughton, the CEO of Calumet and Hecla, came to her mother, or the, her great-grandmother, and said, don't worry about where you will have to go. Your husband was a brave man. He was against the union. We're going to take care of you. 
you will be able to own this house. It was a company house. You could own this house as long as uh, one of your sons is working in the mines. And this generosity, this corporate generosity, was to take place in 1963, 50 years of her kids' labor to buy this little clabbered house. And she thought she was, you know, oh, he's so good to me, you know. Um, and so it was, it was just an extraordinary story, and it, it, uh, I just felt that I needed to tell it. Um, I thought I was writing an homage to the work of these amazing women activists in the early 1900s. Annie Clements, Mother Jones, Ella Bloor, uh, Jane Addams, all of these people who had gone out and, and, and seen terrible things around them and just said, we, this, this has got to change. We've got to change this. I finished the book about two days before the 2016 election. And it went from being an homage to being a how-to. <laughs> How do you organize? What do you do when you have a defeat? What, where do you go with the anger and the shock and the disappointment? What do you do with all of that? So the book had been finished before the election, and I have been stunned by how topical it seems today. Thank you, and that actually is um, what my next question is about. There have been a couple of books out recently about labor unions, mm -hmm. um, Deep River by Carl Marlantis, which takes place in the same era but deals with lumber unions in mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest, and Wiley Cash's The Last Ballad come to mind. Is it a coincidence that we are suddenly seeing a wealth of books about labor unions, or is there something in the air? I, well, certainly <laughs> these books are being published into um, a time that is much more ready to read them. I never expected this book to get published. I thought, well, who cares? You know, this is a, a strike against a copper country company. That copper company. In 1913, it's over 100 years ago, the, the strike failed. It's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. A lot of people don't even realize that that's not Canada. Um, I didn't expect it to get published. And it found the right publisher. And two years later, it, it is opening up into a time when people are realizing that, that all of the protections for workers that were put through in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s by unions have been systematically dismantled. And you've got a whole generation growing up crippled by debt. Stay in school. You'll get a good job. <laughs> good luck with that. Um, you can, th nobody works eight-hour days anymore. Um, you have very little control over your hours. So people get these part-time jobs where they're on call all the time, but they're only paid for when they come in. And they're kept under 30 hours so that they don't get any benefits. It's the, the system has c consistently eroded what unions fought for and died for. People died for the eight-hour day. And when you work, when you're hurt on the job, mm -hmm. you get compensation, workman's comp. Um, all of these things have just disappeared from the workforce, and people are beginning to realize, no, we, this is just an awful way to live. We need to. So I, th I think that the, the pendulum has swung back. People are beginning to realize that something has been lost, and we need to get that back. It's just, you know, the, the corporations have, they can speak with one voice. They have lawyers. They can speak for all of their stockholders. One, one person can represent them. It's only fair to have an organization that speaks for 
employees. And that's what a union is. It's just there to balance the power. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Mary Doria Russell. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Mary Doria Russell, author of The Women of Copper Country, published by our friends at Atria Books. Uh, Mary, the trouble in this book starts with a device called the one-man drill. Can you tell us what the one-man drill is and why it is so problematic? The whole issue of automation and employment is not new, nor is globalization. Okay, We've been dealing with this for a long time. In the copper mines, they, uh, the CEO was um, someone who, it's a real guy, I mean, I'm, I've accurately portrayed James McNaughton. He was a time and motion expert. He was a scientific manufacturing proponent. And he felt that if they moved from the two-man drill to a one-man drill, all kinds of wonderful things would happen, including being able to lay off 50% of the miners, mm-hmm. okay? Take down your... Uh, um, your expenses on that end, and you will uh, do well for your shareholders. Okay. The problem with the one-man drill was that only the very biggest and strongest guys could handle it. Um, and if there was an accident, there was nobody there to pull you out from under the rock. There was nobody to run for help. Um, there was nobody that you could spell yourself with. If you had a two-man drill, there was always somebody there in case something went wrong. And you could swap off. When you would get to the point where your arms were buzzing all the way back to your shoulders, the other guy takes over and you get a little bit of a break. Um, and that was going to go away. Solomon Cavisto, my friend Rivka's great-grandfather, d- agreed to take on a one-man drill. Very, I mean, He was ostracized by people. It was a very divisive moment. Um, so that was what was going on with the the um, the strike. They were said we we not only eight hours eight hours work, we want three dollars a day for uh, for everybody. All the underground workers should get three dollars a day. Um, and uh, uh, those kind of issues, this mine safety, those kind of things were were part of it. But also, they said no to the one man drill for all the reasons I've outlined. It was more dangerous. One of the things that that kicks the strike off is that Annie Clements, this 25-year-old woman who ran the Women's Auxiliary of Local 15 of the Western Federation of Miners, Annie Clements had been going to funerals every week since she was about nine. And she just got, you know, it's every single week there was another funeral. One man was, on average, one man died every week. And that doesn't count the guys who were, who were maimed, whose limbs were crushed, and there was no workman's comp. You, you just lost your job. Everybody, you know, there was, there was no safety net for people like that. And she finally just said, I'm, 
it's got to end. Not one more man, not one more brother, not one more husband, not one more son. Not, you know, we've got to do something. And she mobilized the women of the copper country. That <laughs> said, go home and talk to your guys. You know, mm-hmm. get the fellas to understand that we're all we spend our days waiting to be told which one of us is going to be the widow. So it was that kind of thing, and the one man drill was a flashpoint. Mm-hmm. And continuing along these lines, uh, many of the strikers in this book, as you were saying, and many of the strikers of this era and other areas of the country are women. Um, And why were women, as opposed to men, such strong leaders of the labor movement? Well, for, for people like Annie and the women of the Copper Country, I mean, these women are working their hearts out every day. They're, they're you know, gardening and canning and taking in washing, and they're, they're working in the big houses of the, the management and the people who lived in Laurium. Uh, and, uh, but, like Annie says, you know, the, the, the guys are down there. The men are down in the mines. They can only see as far as the, um, the carbide lamp on their foreheads. They can't talk to one another. It's too noisy. Women talk. And they are the ones that have to to pick up the pieces. And they were the ones who decided, I do not want to raise another generation. As far as the company was concerned, the women existed to have babies who would grow up and go down in the mines. And they had got, the women had gotten to the point where they said, I'm not willing to tell my kids that this is all their life is. That they're just, you know, they're going to be used like a piece of machinery, and if they break down, they're out on the streets. And I just, I can't do that anymore. And so they, their support for the for the strikes was crucial. Um, the men very quickly would get to the point where they said, you know, I just want to go back to work. Nobody wants to strike; they just want to be treated fairly. Um, and a lot of times, it was the women that kept things going. Says, no, we're, you know, I. And the women would stop eating. You know, they'd say, I'm not hungry. Here, you have this. They'd feed the kids, they'd feed the, the husbands, and they'd take whatever scraps were left at the end. Um, and so it was their determination to see it through that often kept the strikes going. Sometimes the strikes were, were successful. Um, but sometimes in, at, in this era, in, in 1913, 1914, 1915, um, the Supreme Court had said, if you accept a salary, the, uh, the employer has full control over everything that happens to you. You have no rights. You accepted that salary. He can do anything he wants. And so um, they would call, the, the, uh, the companies would call in troops. And at the same time that the copper mine uh, strike was going on, there, was, there were strikes in West Virginia and in Colorado, and they brought in an uh, army who machine-gunned the, the, the strikers. It's, you know, <laughs> this people died for the eight-hour day in workman's comp, and, you know, it's, it's a really important part of our history that just gets lost. It is, and uh, Mother Jones, who you mentioned earlier, you know, she, she comes into this book like a whirlwind, which is perhaps the wrong thing to say as we're sitting here uh, waiting on <laughs> waiting a hurricane. hurricane. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, what a strong character. She was just a delight to write. That's my favorite chapter. That was the one where, you know, she's, um, uh, she's only six, six or seven years older than I am now. And I was writing a book that was about a 14-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy. And, you know, Annie Clements is 25. And, you know, this, these are young people. Mother Jones <laughs> comes in. She was called the, both the miner's angel and the most dangerous woman in America. 
Uh, and and she she wore that label proudly, and she loved the minor. She she would show up for any kind of strike, and she was um, it was seventy six when she went to Calumet, and she had bad knees, and she had a rotten heart, and she was you know she, she was in poor physical condition, but she gets up in front of a crowd, and she just makes them want to go on, um, and I she was she was amazing. She was just a wonderful woman to write. Excellent, thank you so much. Um, in this book, uh, and in the town where the book takes place, Calumet, there are two things, the company and the church. Yes. Are you drawing a parallel between the two? Well, Mother Jones spoke about this. She, one of the reasons that Mother Jones, she, she comes over during the, the Great Famine from Ireland. She finds a good man in America. She has three kids. And they all died in her arms in a matter of hours from typhus. So she starts a dress shop, which is what women did. You know, you could either you could make, be a dressmaker, you could be a prostitute, and that was pretty much the only things that were available to you. So she starts a dress shop, and the Great Chicago Fire wipes her out. So all right, now she's widowed, she's got no children, her business is gone. So she signs up to be a construction worker. <laughs> and that's when she finds out about what, you know, you, you work all day. First of all, she was seeing people who were begging for work. They would take any amount and they would bid against one another for how low they would, how little they would take for 14 hour days. And she decides, all right, this is screwed up. And there were wildcat strikes. Finally, people got fed up and said, all right, we're, nobody's going to work. Nobody's going to work. Uh, and she went to church one day and the priest in her church preached that they should they should do that honor what the masters wanted them to do go back to work stop the strike don't be involved with the union and mother jones who was in her 30s at this point stood up and said i'm damned if i'll wait for pie in the sky <laughs> and that was that's where that comes from i don't i will not eat shit here mm-hmm. And, and wait for pie in the sky. And she walked out and never went back to a church. And yet, there were, you know, there were churches that supported the workers. And I, so that's, hap- both of those things are happening in Calumet. Um, in the 1910 um, census, Calumet, Michigan, had the largest number of churches per capita of any, any city in the United States. And it was because they had all 31, 33 different uh, immigrant groups that were working there, and they all had their own churches. And the company was very happy to have them separated out like that. The company was against anything that brought people together. Um, so the, the, the churches had a mixed record on this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary. Um, I lived in Arizona for a minute. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and every day I wake up thankful that I am no longer there. Um, <laughs> especially but, when it's 112 there especially, today. Especially, yeah. yes. Um, but one of my favorite places to visit in Arizona was a small town called Jerome that used to be a copper mining town. Uh-huh. And uh, in the women of copper country, you allude to the copper operations in the West causing trouble for the operation in Calumet, Michigan. How did these operations in the West affect the one that you were focusing on well, in your book? Well, Calumet Copper was deep. That was hard rock mining, and it was deep. And they had been in business for uh, since the Civil War. And so you were, you were walking two miles down to get to the point where the, the, the deposits were still intact. Out in the West, 
in Montana and Arizona, there were surface deposits of copper. Well, it's a whole lot cheaper to dig it out from the surface, you blast and you collect it, than it is to go under and to, um, to make the tunnels and the supports and all the rest of it, and then it has to come out two miles, and you're going to push the, uh, the trams full of ore out of the mines and all that. Much, much cheaper and easier to do uh, surface mining. So that was partly why McNaughton at Kylie Met and Hecla was trying to, um, uh, to, to get rid of about half of his workforce so that he could drive his costs down and be able to compete with the, with the mines in the West. Ultimately, that, that failed, and the mines in, in, uh, in Calumet had to shut down. They just weren't economical anymore. Thank you so much, Mary. And finally, I want to ask you about marketing. Uh, <laughs> one of the most important characters in this novel is a photographer and a newspaper man who decides to market Annie Clements, um, and she, by way, becomes his muse. What was the importance of marketing a story in this era, specifically a story like the strike of a labor union? Well, uh, even today, um, a single picture can make such a difference. Remember when that little boy washed up on the shores of, uh, of Greece? It, he became the way that people... It, it stopped being about, one per, about this mass of migration. It was about that little boy drowning. Um, it, it's, it, being able to show pic people pictures of one single thing. You know, the, the, uh, at, at the, um, the immigration lines, that little girl crying... Um, the pictures in the 1910s and just just before the the strike in 1913, you had the sh the um, uh, the shirtwaist factory disaster where the, you know th uh, there again if you have if if the exits of your uh, work for, uh, workplace do not lock you in thank a union because that's because of those girls being locked in. And they jumped out of this burning building because there was no way to get out. And they, the newspapers published pictures of the bodies on that street in front of the factory. And it, they finally got some labor uh, protections put through. The girls had been in the streets. They had, been, uh, they had struck. They had marched. They had done all the right stuff. But it took dead bodies in the streets to finally make people feel that they needed something has to be done. And so uh, uh, Mike Sweeney, the photographer, um, who has come from New York originally and who was um, in the neighborhood that Jacob Reese, the, the photographer who did How the Other Half Lives, he's in the book, you know? And he, he wants to make the world better. And so he, he figures out how to get himself a camera and he goes from place to place and he, he is supporting... Um, the strikers, and he's particularly interested in Calumet because it's not it's not a, a filthy, um, muddy uh, tent village, right? He wants to show the the person who wakes up in the morning and opens their newspaper. He wants to show them people like you, families like yours need help. Be you know, and those at at the end of the book, he there was actually a real photographer who took the picture of the children and that was front page news so yeah wow thank you so much mary listeners i have been speaking with mary doria russell author of the women of copper country published by her friends at atria books mary thank you so much for joining oh, me i'm very happy to do it thank you
Once again, I would like to thank Mary Doria Russell for joining me. Signed copies of The Women of Copper Country can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space to get three audiobooks for the price of one and support your favorite independent bookstore, Quail Ridge Books, in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.